This is the Temple 10 Q&A, the Temple 10 Q's monthly podcast. The Temple 10 Q is the voice of, by, and for Temple's business law community. Before we begin our show today, I just want to say a quick word. I've had the privilege of being the host of the Temple 10 Q&A podcast for the last year. Fortunately or unfortunately, I'm graduating from Temple Law this May, so this will be my final podcast episode. But have no fear, the Temple 10 Q&A isn't going away. We're coming back with a brand new amazing host in August to keep bringing you the interviews of faculty, alum, and students that you've all come to enjoy over these last couple months. This episode's going to be a little bit different. Usually, we have 10 questions and answers, 10 Q&A. But this is a little bit more of an extended conversation. Today's guest is AJ Raju the former chairman and CEO at Dilworth, and now the founder and managing partner of his own law firm, Raju LLP and IO Law Firm. AJ Raju is also the managing partner of his own venture capital firms, 215 Capital and Togo Ventures. He's also a regular guest on Inside Story for 6ABC and hosts his own program called Overheard at Teradici. He also is the head of the Pamela and AJ Foundation and funds the Philadelphia Citizen, a nonprofit organization focused on civic engagement. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if AJ was also a painter, a musician, a world class engineer, and a Hall of Fame basketball player. Please welcome to this episode of the Temple 10 QA, Renaissance man AJ Raju. So, AJ, to get us uh, started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, not not the most exciting story, you know, a typical immigrant story. Came to this country at age 14, um, grew up in Northeast Philadelphia, was blessed to go to Temple undergrad and law school, and um, and worked for uh, several great law firms, and and now we're talking to each other. Nice. And sorry. All right. So. I mentioned at the beginning that you were formerly at Dilworth, and then you made the decision to start your own firm. Can you tell me a little bit about you know what led to that decision? Um, mostly because many of the things that we uh, we planted several seeds back in 2014, and a little earlier than that, uh, this was more so on our foundation initiatives like the Germination Project, Philadelphia Citizen, Int Exchange, and the Ten Program, and other things like that, along with also for-profit initiatives like our venture funds, 215 Capital, Togo and others, and Indigo and Paragon and Front Seat Films. All, most of these entities we were expecting to be created to serve our clients, but uh, along the way they started having their own explosive growth, partly because you know we partner with the best people, but uh, we weren't anticipating the kind of growth that we experienced, so it was easier for me to start focusing on all the all the varied interests that we had. And, and so it's much more of a selfish journey for me uh, to now focus on things that have a common aligned vision and, and to further experiment with the, with the journey that we started probably in 2007 with the core group and I. And what would you say is the most challenging and the most rewarding parts of your current situation? Uh, I, you know, I, I haven't worked uh, literally since 1999. It's been... Uh, you know, every day uh, I, I like to do things that I love, and yeah. I've been blessed to have the opportunity to do that. The only days where it feels like work is politics, where I have to deal with, uh, uh, you know, trying to lead by explanation as opposed to lead by example. Yeah. But other than that, you know, I've had nothing but great times. So there are not many um, 
challenges. Uh, you know, we, we feel like we're painting on a canvas, and our colleagues and I, and, and we're blessed to have some amazing clients. So I'm not saying that just to be a flip uh, or, or, or to be cute, but I really don't see many challenges uh, because innovation and disruption to me is exciting, it's not a challenge. I mean, I think you know, adaptability is something that we naturally gravitate towards, so we don't really see lots of challenges. We mostly view the world with a lens of, you know, is it an opportunity or not? Yeah. Well, you use this word disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard you use that a lot you know, throughout. Can you elaborate a little bit about what that kind of entails? Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, you can either be a, a voice or you can be an echo. Uh, you can repeat what the industry has already created or you can uh, pierce the bubble and create a new bubble. Right? Yeah. And most of the companies that we're blessed with working with um, or the entrepreneurs that uh, engage with us or we engage with um, are usually the piercers of bubbles, right? Because they are usually at the fringe of the bubble trying to escape and they create a whole new bubble, a new conversation, and a new voice that others echo, right? And uh, we, along the way, fancy ourselves as a a similar, you know, trying to create a new voice for them sometimes or try to amplify the voice that our entrepreneurs or disruptors, you know, bring to the table. Uh, So that's, that has been a a fun journey uh, for my legal practice, you know, being around entrepreneurs, seeing how the the, uh, the innovation curve continues to bend yeah. with some other disruptive thought or some other new idea. So on a practical level, how does that look different than what, you know, your normal non-disruptive lawyer is doing? Well, uh, I think, so I, I, there, there are two different thoughts, you know, so uh, the way I describe it is, uh, the three types of philosophies, right? the Western, Eastern, and African philosophy. The Western yeah. philosophy says, uh, generally since the time of enlightenment, um, uh, I think, therefore I am. And that philosophy places a tremendous amount of emphasis on knowledge and experience. So a good lawyer and a good accountant or a good doctor you know, is refining that knowledge, you know, furthering that degree. You know, you get a JD or you get an LLM and then you get practice and apprentice level, partner level, and honing the artisanal skill and experience. Increasing your knowledge base and developing experience. All of that is extremely important. That's what a great lawyer does. Um, But typically those who are innovating, usually you can't innovate if it's you making the same widget again and again and again. You can be perfecting the widget, but you can't really innovate. Usually innovators follow the philosophy, when I stop thinking, I become. And in that context, you have to completely redesign and create a new bubble. So that means you can't look like the existing bubble, right? So, so most innovators and most uh, clients or, or disruptive or innovative law firms or lawyers are creating a new bubble that didn't exist before. The only way to do that is to first erase your knowledge you know, ignore your experience and to start with a blank page and think differently, which is not what great technicians do. Great technicians will follow the same thing again and again. You know, you'll keep shooting the same way until Kareem comes in and says, I'll do the skyhook. And nobody was doing the skyhook. And then eventually, they're echoes of the skyhook, but he was the original voice, right, who perfected that. And then somebody else comes in and does a crossover. Well, then becomes a new echo of that voice. So it's the same concept. Some entrepreneur, some lawyer, um, you know, in the legal industry, I keep referring to uh, my uh, um, big brother, the late, great Steve Goodman from Morgan Lewis. 
he was a disruptor. He was an innovator. Not because yeah. he was trying. He just instinctively, you know, thought differently and yeah. uh, enabled his mind uh, to not just be tied to knowledge and experience, but gave himself uh, permission to have a blank page and to be ignorant. And it's usually through ignorance that great disruption happens. So are you equating your law experience right now to being the new Kareem, the new Steph Curry, trying to be that innovator? I'm not. Uh, you know, I've had some experiences where I've, I think, done a couple of things that accidentally have stumbled into it, but I will say that I'm probably uh, take credit for being ignorant, uh, yeah. but for not having the kind of experience that my colleagues have, perhaps, and not being as entrenched with knowledge and experience. Uh, because when that happens, look, it's the, the, you know, the old story of the two-year-old uh, that uh, developed instant camera. Uh, uh, the reason was because daddy takes the photo, and the two-year-old says, let me see, dad. And dad says, oh, you know, no, I have to watch the film. I have to go through all this. So you'll see it in about a week or two. He's like, why can't I see it now? Well, only a two-year-old would ask the question that why not, right? It's the yeah. same concept. Sometimes it takes somebody who is not well immersed into something to really come in with a blank page, to ask the stupid questions in a room. And usually that comes from either overconfidence, where you can ask the dumbest question because yeah. you're confident and ask the most obvious, or out of ignorance. So I think, you know... I now have at least, uh, in my own office, at least I have the confidence to ask the dumb questions. Um, but uh, I always had the ignorance to ask the most obvious questions, even when I was younger. So what's your current most obvious question that you're, that you're asking yourself and you're grappling with? Well, it's the notion of, as a counsel, uh, you know, the lawyer versus counsel model, what can a client expect? You know, how can we um, look at the world through the prism and the aperture of our lens expanded enough so that we're not looking at what a law firm should do and how do we perfect legal services, but instead, what should a client expect if they were engaging with a law firm? So what should a client expect? I think the client should expect the same things that uh, they're used to in their normal business life. I mean, you know, when they go, when they interface with Apple or Amazon or Google, the client expects everything, right? So yeah. if, if those are companies that are wherever the client goes, whenever they need them, uh, whatever they need, they sort of think through the client. So the difference between a um, uh, Dell computer that only does computing versus an Apple, Apple's a platform, and Apple thinks more like what would a customer want? Well, the customer wants Dora's backpack, a magical thing that can fit in the palm of your hand, that can connect you with Facebook, LinkedIn, do all my uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, stocks, and, and everything I can imagine should be in there. Every app you can imagine, I can put, call Uber. Everything is within, within that one one thing in the hand, uh, and I think that is what I, a great counsel can also be for a client. Uh, it's to be a platform, to be the trusted advisor, yeah. to be with them wherever they are, whenever they're dealing with an opportunity or uh, exploiting an, uh, an opportunity or dealing with a crisis. Does that not lend itself to a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none kind of dilemma? No, not at all. Apple doesn't uh, manage Facebook and LinkedIn. Apple has apps. Uh, Apple uh, Apple has maybe Apple Pay, but it is a platform where the customer gets, right? Amazon, yeah. uh, Whole Foods, the person who's stocking groceries at Whole Foods is not also developing your Kindle app, right? So, yeah. so you don't have to do that. So in our case, for example, uh, our law firm has other amenities that are not run by our law firms, different partners that I'm aware of the common link. Yeah. 215 Capital is a venture capital platform that uh, we created back in 2014 
Rudy Carson and I own it 50-50. It's a pledge fund. Rudy had the largest tech exit in Philadelphia history. Yeah. He's not a jack of all trades. He is the master of his trade, which is venture capital, technology, SaaS. He runs it. Now, we own 50-50, but he is 80% of the brains. Yeah. So if we're going to invest in money, now our Series A fund is one of the largest funds in the city. Um, that lives with the legal services that we provide. So if a client is in search of capital, they don't have to use 215 Capital, but that is an amenity that they have available. Same thing with Indigo, our embedded executive and residence consulting platform, or Front Seat Films, or Paragon. All of these companies live as a potential value add for the client and the needs that they have, but but each one has their own artisanal people who yeah. you know know how to do the crossover and the skyhook perfectly. Isn't there a little bit of a problem in that sort of cross-pollination, like to take your Apple example, sure. Apple's getting into a lot of trouble with you know, their app store and how they treat people that aren't Apple products or not favorably treated by Apple. Sure. Are your clients potentially at a disadvantage because they're your clients but also connected? You said they could go to anyone else, but yeah. is there like, like a hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, use mm. ours? Uh, of course, there's always, we want them to use us if, if it makes sense, but it's these are there for their amenity. Now, I think from a client standpoint, client's always in control. Right? Yeah. So they pick who they want to pick with. Uh, and and in our profession, there is the sort of the conflict rules, rules of ethics, and, and uh, you have to follow that. So if you're investing in a company, for example, if I'm going to, through 215 Capital, invest in a, in a company, and that company then decides to use our law firm for legal services, well, there has to be disclosure, there has to be an engagement letter that sets you know, those rules of conflict in, in place. We advise our insurance company that uh, uh, that is the case, and the company also explains to their board of directors and others. So the thing about conflicts is that there's also waivers and, uh, and disclosures. So that is there. Now, why would they still want to use it? Obviously, because uh, the, either they need capital, they couldn't find it somewhere else where they've got better deals with us, yeah. but there's a better value add that they want. That's why they use it, right? So you would think of a phone, we go back to that metaphor, um, a phone in the old days when I grew up, you know, you may be too young to remember this, but the, 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 there were phones that were hanging on a wall, and all they did was make phone calls. They were analog phones. Yeah. The innovation there was the longer extension cord, right? That was the main innovation. I had one of those in my grandma's house. Right. With the whole house. Right, and that's what you had the innovation. Today, you look at an iPhone, it's one of the most innovative things. It is sort of a platform where everything lives. Yeah. Right? So you can, you, we can be a blockbuster, another metaphor. You can be a blockbuster that only focuses on, you know, same store revenues, et cetera. But what Netflix did as a disruption was it started to understand what the customer wants. It started to ship the, uh, you know, uh, D uh, CDs, D DVDs to their home, therefore knew where they lived, where the concentration was, what they were watching, and they could recommend, et cetera. It was much more focused on what the customer's preferences and needs were, right? Yeah. So that's the difference between a counsel versus a lawyer that we were talking about. Yeah. The law firm, if it's only focused on its quarterly revenues, what their realizations are, utilizations are, then they are more like a blockbuster model. They'll yeah. be very good at making the phone, you know, doing the extension cord if you need it, or like the blockbuster model. But if you really are looking at the world through the prism of the customer or the client, and your aperture of the lens is more broadened, then you're going to say, what would a client want? Well, the client doesn't usually have a legal problem. Yeah. It has a problem with has which has legal components, but it could also have a government relations component, a communications component, or a, a, a capital. You don't have to have a law firm that provides all of those things, but yeah. wouldn't it be nice 
if the law firm can actually direct you to those things. So that it's a one, not a one-stop shop, but at least a much more of a comprehensive, convergent, and a clear way of, of providing service to a client. That's a little bit against the grain of sort of the current landscape of what law practices are doing and what law firms are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but those other law firms seem to have been successful at doing you know, whatever their stagnant model is. Are you suggesting that the old way of doing things might go by way of Blockbuster? Where Absolutely will. Absolutely will. It already is. If you look at some of the greatest law firms now in the market today, they're already beginning to do this. Okay, right. Accounting firms already did this. Right? Yeah. They were also in the service business. They already pivoted almost 20, 30 years ago, the model that we're talking about. Bain Consulting, Bain Capital, right? So Accenture, all of these things came out of accounting firms, et cetera. So the, that notion of, of when you think about the three C's, comprehensive, if you're a customer, yeah. right? Let's say you're using in a construction metaphor now. Let's just do a different metaphor. <laughs> We're just hopping know. through metaphors today. Happy to do that. <laughs> so if you're, if you're doing a construction of your kitchen, you hire a general contractor. Mm-hmm. They work with an architectural design people. And then you have plumbers and electricians, all subcontractors that work together. Right? Yeah. So think about the GC or the council as the general contractor. Yeah. Right, They are coordinating. There has to be a... Why? Because the client wants a comprehensive wraparound solution. They want the whole kitchen, they not want, just the, the sink. And they don't want to go from one and then go negotiate with the plumber. And the, they want somebody to take... They want, at some point, somebody to take ownership of the entire comprehensive problem and, and create a bespoke solution that is customized for that client based on an architectural design that actually makes sense for the client. So it has to be com- uh, uh, comprehensive. Number two, that comprehensive service has to be convergent, that's the convergence happens, yeah. to the client's design, and there has to be clarity, right? Who is the customer beholden to and vice versa? Is there an engagement letter between the plumber? Is it going through the GC or is it directly with the homeowner? It's the same concept in in this law concept, right? Is the engagement letter with the law firm and the client? What about the capital? What if, what happens if there's a conflict between the law firm partners who also own, you know, what are the rules of conflict that uh, address that? If there's yeah. clarity and it converges to a common design and you're getting comprehensive service, no problems. The yeah. problems will happen if there is conflict, right? And that's why you have to be really vigilant in making sure that you don't create an environment that is meant to be beneficial to the customer or the client, but then creates inherent conflicts and problems. And that's where the, you know, that's where it becomes a bit more difficult and harder to create a platform. Yeah. So kind of sticking with this contractor, my dad was a contractor growing up, so it really resonates with me. Um, Why is it that lawyers and law firms are the ones that should be the general contractor? Why aren't we the plumber? Why isn't it the accounting services who've been doing this for 20, 30 years that are the ones that should be running the show. Well, I think when we talk about lawyer versus counsel, yeah. that would be the answer. A lawyer can be the accountant or the plumber. I mean, a lawyer can be the plumber or the electrician who's just providing a specific service, which is papering a document or, you know, doing the paperwork. You know, we, uh, um, whereas a counsel, that could be an accounting firm, a consulting firm, a law firm. It doesn't have to be only a law firm. But if you ask me, the greatest law firms and the greatest lawyers people like Steve Goodman, the late great Steve Goodman and others, they lived at the intersection of relationships, value, and judgment. Yeah. Law firms in general touch every aspect of humanity because of their pro bono work, 
that touch every aspect of the city because of their political context, especially blue chip law firms yeah. who are, you know, expertise. And the value that they offer is not just legal, but, you know, sometimes they offer a lot more than that, right? And the judgment is bespoke, is understood. So when you live in that intersection, you're able to offer something a lot more. So you are, as a lawyer or a law firm, best positioned, even more so in my mind, maybe I'm biased, than an accounting firm or a consulting firm. Yeah. Consultants maybe also. I mean, I, we believe Indigo does the same thing, which we come in, we, when we embed inside the company, we see all of the problems, right? Yeah. And, but whether you call it a lawyer or whatever, it's counsel. You know, that uh, to me, the definition of a great counsel is is, you know, every entrepreneur goes through a moment of kairos. Yeah. That moment within the continuum of time that is pregnant with opportunity. And when that entrepreneur goes through that kairotic moment, normally they have somebody on their speed dial that they consider their counsel. That counsel could be an aunt, mom, dad, husband, wife, accountant, a lawyer who happens to be counsel, right? Because yeah. they're processing that chaotic moment. They're excited. They're thinking it through. Once the processed moment is done, then it needs to be papered. A law, a law firm gets involved with the M&A deal or gets involved with the litigation, et cetera. So that's the difference. I mean, it's that... You know, a great counsel, a great law firm, should be having chirotic dreams on behalf of the client. Yeah. That's why, and by the way, they're well positioned to do that. So that's why I think if you ask, you know, why are law firms not just doing papering the documents? Sure, they can do that. They can make a living doing that and make premium dollars doing it. Yeah. But at some point, the competition will be because some other law firms or great counsel like Steve Goodman, the late great Steve Goodman, what they were offering was a lot more. And when you're a client, when you're a customer, you say, why am I not going there? I'm yeah. getting this comprehensive convergence service over there. Here, it's just when I need plumbing done, I call a plumber. Over there, it's, I want the entire kitchen done. Yeah. So recognize that chirotic moment that you're talking about. Yeah. That seems to take some level of skill and intuition to, to recognize and be able to, to work with. Is that a skill that can be taught, or is that just kind of a natural inclination? Like, did Steve Goodman have just a natural ability to recognize that moment that was pregnant with opportunity. Well, I think that's where uh, you know our conversation about innovators and disruptors, you know, become key, right? So that that notion of most entrepreneurs see things uh, that others don't see, right? Yeah. Because they are they are a new voice as opposed to an echo of an old idea, right? So uh, for entrepreneurs, they're seeing some sort of a mutation with disparate data and they see something and cross-connect with this disparate data that others did not see and they were the first to pounce on it. Yeah. And normally, when you do that, uh, you need people to create that orchestra of thought where you say, I've got this kernel of an idea, I don't know where this is leading, but help me think this through. Usually having a great accountant and a great uh, structure council, a great um, um, the capital uh, markets person next to you would be amazing because now you're because at some point you're going to need capital, you're going to need legal structure, you're going to need accounting. Yeah. So imagine having everybody at the beginning at that table while you're going through that chaotic moment. If you're blessed with that, with that gang, uh, then yeah, your ability to go from ideation to execution is now accelerated, and the probability of success is even uh, stronger. So our Law schools teaching any of this because this all of this sounds like it's outside of the realm of my legal education thus far. It sounds wholly new and innovative. Mm -hmm. Is there a way for that to be taught to young lawyers coming out to to kind of foster that innovation and disruptive spirit? Yeah, I think you can. Um, and I think if you're a law student, um, 
I would live at the intersection of the Eastern, Western, and African philosophy. Okay, and not blame. We didn't discuss the African philosophy so much. So, 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 I wouldn't worry about what law schools are teaching you. Yeah, because I think all great, uh, um, you know, intellectuals and great business people and people who are successful generally are self-taught. In some cases, they're just knowledge hungry and they just get it from anywhere. Uh, They're structured environment where they're on independent, mostly through independent, uh, you know, learning. So you think about the Western philosophy. I think, therefore, I am big emphasis on knowledge and, uh, and experience. That's what law school teaches you. Precedent case law, here's the, the experience of learning, 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 thinking, yeah. thinking, thinking, like a sushi sh- a chef, making the, you know, perfecting it, like a uh, martial artist, perfecting that punch and a kick and a yeah. sensei teaching you, right? But you can do that, and if you just keep on doing that, then you will just be an echo of a perfect kick or a perfect punch, but it would not be a new voice. It would not be a new skyhook. It will be the same shot again and again. You with me? Yeah. So that's what a law school teaches, and there's nothing wrong with that. You need to have that artisanal skill to know exactly how to make a shot. Knowledge and experience are extremely important. That's important. Now let's talk about the African philosophy. Instead of I think, therefore I am, it is we think, therefore we are. It's much more of a tribal team, village. Collective. So even if you have an idea, if you don't have a CFO or a GC and others, the idea doesn't go much, right? I mean, you know, you can't have a solo career. Or very few people can have that. Normally, you need a team. You need to collaborate. You need to have yeah. a common vision, common aligned mission, shared values, and then execution. That team spirit has to be there for all successful people, whether you're a lawyer or an entrepreneur. And number three is sort of the Eastern philosophy, if I, would, if I may. It's more when I stop thinking, I become. Yeah. That's the blank canvas. That's where you're, you're, all of us are inside of a specific bubble, but there's somebody who's sort of interested in piercing the bubble and creating a new bubble, yeah. and that's where the innovation happens, right? So those are the people that say, let's try a new way of doing it, either through a new technology or a new tool or a new way of practicing or coming up with a novel case uh, uh, argument. Though that's where that's the realm of innovators and disruptors, right? Those are the people that create a new voice that everybody else goes to law school to echo. All right, so you're talking about innovation in this kind of legal space. You're also pretty heavily involved in Philadelphia's tech and business scene. Can you give me like a little bit of lay of the land? Like what's kind of your 3,000, 30,000 foot view of kind of what Philadelphia's business innovative landscape is looking like right now? Well, I think if you're a, a marketing agency trying to define what Philadelphia is, especially looking out into the future. Um, To me, if Philadelphia is Idaho, medical tech and biotech is our potato. Yeah. Right? I mean, we are blessed with some of the greatest scientists. Um, I'm not just saying that native pride. CRISPR, immuno-oncology, when you think about cancer research, messenger RNA, the technology that uh, Pfizer and modern, that happened here. So within a five minute Uber ride or or cab ride, we're sitting with people who are in the 100 or 200 years from now, the history book will say, we're the founders and the creators of the new innovation in medical science. So from a tech and innovation standpoint, you know, we're in a different era where technology, genetic sequencing, as well as the biology and aspects of science are all converging, the physics, biology, you know, uh, 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 all of those disciplines are converging. There's cross-connection there. So yeah. we're seeing elements of that, you know, taking hold. And 
Uh, one of the things that I would uh, suggest is that we have extremely fertile soil, blessed with Pan Medicine and Chop and Jefferson and Temple and all of the other great medical institutions. You can look at the NIH grants. We, we, we dominate NIH grants. Um, then you have labs, and but there's a pathway from the lab to the commercialization. Companies like Community Sparks, all of those things are coming out of uh, out of our ecos uh, ecosystem. But we're going to need seeds. That's capital. Yeah. That's where it's missing right now. We need more capital. Number two, we're going to need more lab space. So even if you become a company, there is a shortage of buildings and places where you can have basic safety labs or or CLIA labs or where people can actually grow an industry here. Yeah. And there are people right now investing millions in order to build that real estate landscape. We yeah. just launched a nonprofit called the ARC Institute. It was primarily as a think tank and a do tank to deal with the pandemic and what happens next so that another flood is coming, we need to build an ARC. But one of the components from this is to recognize that from this great disruption of 2020, massive opportunities will come in. And how do we as a region, Philadelphia, you know, put our flag and say, in the world of medical tech and biotech, we're going to dominate. And how do we now prepare the landscape so that we can actually cultivate the soil, which we know is fertile, but still will require some harvesting. Is being primarily focused on biotech and med tech enough? Isn't that you know kind of single focus? I mean, Idaho has the potato, but what else is in Idaho? Yeah, sorry, so, anybody who's so, from Idaho. So, so we will, we will. When I say our focus, every region should have at least something that they're known for. So we're not suggesting that that's the only industry we should do. Yeah. But obviously, if you have a company like Sparks or Community, well, they have needs for everything else too, right? A whole industry emerges as a result. Um, Silicon Valley was about telecommunications and about uh, the chip. Um, Shenzhen uh, was about the hardware, yeah. right? But that's what they're known for. But other industries emerge there too, right? So, uh, but I think for us, Philadelphia as a region, uh, you know, for the past 60 odd years or so, I think we've missed almost every innovation and every opportunity to dominate, right? Yeah. So we've missed the internet revolution, big data revolution. We've missed most of the other things. Other cities around us sort of took what we had was the historical lead because innovation happened here. We wrote the code of conduct for the modern world in Philadelphia, right? Yeah. But over time, we let our lead go to Seattle's and the Silicon Valley's of the world. How do we recover that? Well, what are we good at? You know, in some ways, we're the Paris Hilton of cities. We've inherited a lot of goodwill. I mean, we have universities, we have, we have hospitals, the world's best universities and hospitals. Yeah. Arts and culture scene, the world's best arts and culture scene. So we have these great assets that we've inherited from our four parents. And now the question is, what do we do with it? How do we now make sure that we have a 2.0, Philly 2.0 mindset with it? Well, we're blessed with Comcast. We had Aramark, but in terms of other, now we have, uh, um, you know, GoPuff and others yeah. who are sort of, you know, are the new modern day, um, uh, you know, the Comcast like we have of the world. an e-gaming e thing going Nerd on Street, here too. Nerd yeah. Street and all those great companies that are emerging. So, of course, that is all going to evolve, but I believe a real case can be made where if you're going to be the world's elite and the top of the world, just like Silicon Valley is, just like Shenzhen is in hardware, I think we can make a real claim that we're the top in terms of immuno-oncology. Nobody yeah. has Carl Jung, nobody has Bruce Levine, Vonda Hyde, all right? Nobody has all of the David Fagenbaum and, and Susan Domchak. And, yeah. and when you look at, and that's just Penn Medicine. We haven't even gone to Jefferson and uh, Lorraine Acovetti and all of those other scientists at yeah. Jefferson. Then I, got, then I have a long list at Temple. So 
nobody is as stacked in this area. Um, maybe the L.A. Valley area as well, and, yeah. uh, but but only one or two regions in this country that can compete with us. But I would make the argument that in the long run, I think we're we're the most stacked team uh, for, for the for, for the. At for, this point, maybe you run. wish you did go to medical school instead of law. Well, <laughs> you know, I probably would have been a flunky there. But but I, I love being a cheerleader and yeah. uh, and uh, and support and and be a. Uh, be an echo for their mission. Uh, it's such a pleasure to see them. I mean, literally, it's like imagine if you could time travel and go back to uh, the valley and see the beginnings of Apple or yeah. uh, or you know IBM's of all, all those companies, great companies. Well, when you're watching Carl June or Bruce Levine or Vanderheide or Sunil Singhal or Susan Domchek, they are the you know, IBM's and Apple's and Amazon's of uh, of medical medical tech and biotech. I mean, they are maybe now they're, they're not working out of a garage, but they got their labs. Absolutely, absolutely. So you mentioned that for the last sixty years, we kind of missed out that everybody's kind of been going away. Mm-hmm. Do you mean that in terms of people or cap, like financing capital, or kind of both? Well, I mean, we're not a financing capital, right? I mean, when you yeah. think about it, if you're a good startup, unless you're really loyal to Philadelphia. There are other incentives for you to go other markets, where because either Sequoia or somebody else will put pressure for you to go to L.A. or Boston or some other place where there's either better trained workforce or better infrastructure or better tax system or more capital or more industry. Because industry likes to go where other industry is already is, right? So that it's much easier for them to not only poach each other but also to grow. Um, we missed out on that, you know, yeah. and it's um, you know it's. It makes no constructive sense to put blame game of saying what, what how do we get here 70 80 odd years of yeah. of, uh, of malaise and then part of it was because I think you know we are a post-industrial city uh, with our own challenges you know we have the in terms of many of the challenges you know we lead the country in child poverty one of the poorest big cities in the country yeah. you know in all of the uh, bad statistics we're sort of leading in terms of violence cleanliness um, in terms of traffic congestion, but I still like our chances because yeah. nobody has Penn Medicine, nobody has CHOP, nobody has Jefferson, nobody has the Philadelphia Museum of Art, Barnes. You know, you can't recreate those things, yeah. right? So we blessed, we're blessed with infrastructure, eds and meds, and I know we can't just be one-trick ponies, eds and meds only, but eds and meds have this exponential growth potential of creating a Carl June, a Bruce Levine, an industry that comes out of these places, wardens of the world, yeah. create multitude of entrepreneurs. Many of them leave our region to create companies elsewhere. It is our uh, challenge to make sure that they plant uh, their growth here in our fertile soil so that yeah. this becomes a garden. So I definitely want to get back to sure. some of those bad statistics that you had mentioned and, and kind of dealing with you know, our education system, poverty, and, and all of that. Um, but again, to kind of touch, you know, rehash this, everybody leaving uh, in COVID-19 during this pandemic, there was a whole flock of everybody out of New York and out of San Francisco to cities, you know, Miami and to Texas. And mm-hmm. we kind of didn't gain from that, that flock away from the New York and the Silicon Valley during the pandemic. Did we miss an opportunity even in the last year to, to have people come back? Well, no, I think we did have some migration from high rent areas and high real estate areas yeah. to us. So, but that was the main reason why they were coming. And But I would make the argument for the past uh, decade or so, um, Philadelphia had the largest uh, um, influx of millennials uh, yeah. moving in. And partly because, I mean, if you look at the statistic clearly, they aren't coming here to become coders or, uh, you know, 
um, uh, uh, physicist, but instead uh, the rent was too expensive in Brooklyn, the cost of living is much better here and more service jobs here. So our service growth happened and uh, yeah. youth came here. Uh, and then during the pandemic, people were looking more so for the suburbs or they were looking for, you know, if you can work remotely, might as well be near a beach or be somewhere where there's more land, et cetera. And we benefited some, but not much. I think our challenge is not just this pandemic related. Our, our question really is, well, how can we make a compelling reason for a young collection of young talent to say we're going to make home in Philadelphia? And that would mean we need to make our streets safer. We need to make sure that our education opportunity is abundant. We need to deal with the crippling poverty. We need to deal with endemic institutional racism that holds uh, some people back uh, yeah. and some groups back uh, institutionally for generations and decades. And um, uh, those are not small problems. We yeah. have to deal with all of them at the same time with real challenges. Is We don't have the luxury of having unlimited resources. So we have to be uh, creative and resourceful, and we have to be good neighbors to each other, right? So we have to sort of say, this is what Philadelphia stands for. Here's our idea, and yeah. we're going to do this, and we're going to support each other, and we're going to grow it. That's what Shenzhen looked. If you compare Shenzhen and okay. Philadelphia, 1980s, Shenzhen was just rice paddies. Yeah. No motors, nothing. Today, per square footage is the most valuable city in the world. Everything is AI. It's QR code. They have stores where you, there's nobody manning it. You know, face recognition opens the door. You go in. You pick something up with a QR code. You walk out. Amazon now has that. A couple, yeah. of, couple of stores like that in the U.S. as well. But imagine being going from just being rice paddies to now being the most advanced where any company anywhere in the world, if you're going to make hardware, it is the hardware capital of the world. Yeah. Similar to Silicon Valley in the in the 60s when that explosion happened, you know, clearing of peach trees into the, they weren't already Silicon Valley. Somebody or people came together because it was a good area. How did Austin become Austin, right? Something happened. Colorado has four or five cities that are going through this through boom that, yeah. and growth. Houston, look at the demographics of Houston in the 1980s, what it is today, completely transformed. So as a city, as a neighborhood, as people, we have to sort of say, what are we selling? Yeah. What is our large vision? What is our mission? How, do we, how are we different? And what is our shared cultural values? And if all of us have an alignment, or majority of us have alignment, that's how great cities and neighborhoods are created. A neural network of communities start developing yeah. and more positive happens and you don't spend as much time fighting over the negatives. So who's supposed to take the lead in, in putting together something like that? I mean, is that the business community? Is that government? Is that lawyers? You know, What is it? It should be all of us. I think it should be, look, it, it, it's helpful to have uh, sometimes leadership from the top. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it helps. But it's not always necessary. You know, I can give you examples of Singapore and yeah. others that were sort of ground up, a sense of innovation. Everybody comes together and works together. So there, that, that can happen in multiple different ways. And, you know, uh, you don't have to be a, a homeland security to uh, say something if you see something. You know, it's the same thing yeah. with civic improvement. You don't have to be uh, a trash collector to pick up litter. Uh, you don't have to be a chief innovation officer to come up with an innovative idea. You don't have to be any of those things. But so it's a collection. But of course, uh, having uh, the public sector, especially the mayor's office and city council and the chamber of commerce, I mean, I think they have a heavy thumb on the scale of influence and they cl clearly help. Our educational institutions are clearly leading. Uh, you know, you look at the great innovation coming out of Penn. Yeah. Well, I'm a big Penn Madison fan. I know um, uh, 
uh, I, I owe my life to Temple undergrad and Temple Law School, but what's happening at Penn Medicine is just unique, and I see it. And it's, it's not just the scientists. It's the visionary leadership that laid the foundation. It's, yeah. it's the, you know, the real estate folks, the money folks, the innovation folks. That's a microcosm of what is possible if everybody comes together and has a common vision, mission, and a shared values. So in the kind of public space, in the civic engagement space, what things can city council or a mayor's office be doing differently to help fertilize? Because I think, you know, fertilizing a landscape like this takes, you know, that capital, the financing, the people, but it also kind of takes that public sector help. What can they be doing better? Well, I mean, there could be, uh, one, you have to make sure that everybody has an opportunity, a share of the opportunity, right? Yeah. Um, um, uh, that, that, that's part of the burden, to make sure that it's an inclusive, shared prosperity. Um, what they can do is uh, double down on things that potentially could work, right? To create, so, for example, I, you know, we were having this uh, discussion not that long ago about Mantua, which is right next to Penn Madison yeah. and, and Wharton and, and, and Drexel, et cetera. It's landlocked. That's part of the reason why it is also the, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. Yeah. It's landlocked. So people, normally, if you're not living there, the only reason why you're there is because you're traveling from center city to mainline and back and forth, right? But imagine if a transit stop was there. Yeah. Now people who are there can also migrate back and forth. Well, how about a simple idea? Our universities don't pay taxes, right, because yeah. they're tax exempt. What if we create an incentive for our universities to offer practical skills and associate degrees or technical training to people who live in Mantua, yeah. right? They get to have free education. But let's just use hydroponics as an example. There are all these abandoned buildings yeah. where we can do urban agriculture. Now let's see if city council and others can provide tax incentives for innovative companies to build hydroponic companies within Mantua as long as they hire people from there who yeah. are being trained at either Drexel or Penn Madison. Now it's a sort of symbiotic cycle of taking an existing asset, creating an investment either through tax policies or other incentives to now recreate jobs. That's a Shenzhen, that's a planned community. That when we talk about how does Shenzhen become that, that's how you, yeah. you can do that neighborhood by neighborhood. Right? We, we'll take another example, we all recycle. Yes. We can now have QR codes where you can actually measure what you're recycling. You can tie up every household based on the output amount of recycling you do. If you're in the top 20%, automatically you get enrolled right. into a lottery, oh. let's say, and then you get benefit. So you can gamify a lot of these things where you're incentivizing the public to be good to each other, yeah. to, to be a force for good. So everything you do can add value or actually create a headache for the city. As leaders, you know, until organically people have this sense of like, this is my community, I'm going to clean up, then create sticks and carrots, right? And that's, you can create that. Yeah. And, and that's the difference between how do you make sure that people obey traffic rules? Well, first you got to make sure that the lanes and there are guardrails, and then also and occasionally light. you also have to, and light, and also you have to have traffic cops that kind of remind you that don't, you know, if you cheat, we're going to give you a ticket, you know, we're going to arrest you. Yeah. And the same thing has to happen in a city City in terms of a, a zeitgeist that says, we're going to be a community that believes in peace with each other, cleanliness, innovation, helping each other, growth, progress, yeah. right? And that is not a kumbaya speech. It happens organically, but it's a neural network that develops in people and in groups and cluster groups. You know, when you go to a church, you don't usually ch scream and yell, and same in with the library. Yeah. But you behave a certain way because you're expected to in that environment. 
and people around you are doing the same thing. But if you're in a concert, you're screaming and yelling, right? Yeah. And so it's what are we? What are we trying to be? And what? How are our people neurally net, networked so that they're wired to be a certain way? If you go to New York, you want to dress a certain way or London you dress yeah. a certain way well why can't we pretend that we are New York and Paris you know why does innovation and fashion have to be elsewhere we can also be the most innovative once you believe it believe it or not it starts happening because it starts with one push and eventually becomes a movement a lot of these incentive programs and things that you're kind of talking about though take money and, and political will and right now hasn't the city budget been in a deficit for forever I just expect that it is in a deficit sure. so how does how do you foster the political will to you know balance a budget raise those funds and then put in these programs and also second question don't we have kind of a chicken and egg situation where the city doesn't have money to do the things to foster you know business and innovation because there isn't business and innovation to help pay the city to fill the coffers to do those incentive programs. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, none of this is easy. If this was easy, you know, we would, all, we would be running for office and we would be uh, making this decision. But, but, but you're right, there are always budget issues, but yeah. there is also a political will issue. 42,363, that's the number of vacant lots we have in the city. If a we lot wanted of vacant the, lots. There's a lot of vacant lots. If we had political will, we can convert at least some of it into urban agriculture. Right? Yeah. We can come up with another creative idea to sort of make sure you give to a nonprofit a 99-year lease so that they can cultivate it. And there should be no reason why our kids go hungry in public schools or even we have poverty if we have already these vacant lots that are sitting there as urban agriculture yeah. or abandoned buildings that can be converted into hydroponic farms, right? So the ideas are there, political will has to be there, elastic imagination is needed, a bold leadership is needed, and then also this willingness to not constantly look at problems, but also imagine a world that also has solutions. Yeah. So, uh, you know, our these kinds of conversations led us to, uh, you know, my conversation with Larry Platt, yeah. um, you know, my brother from another mother, as he <laughs> likes to say, uh, the creation of the Philadelphia Citizen. It was more of a solutions-based journalism. Yeah. You know, our notion was we don't want a journalism that says, what happened? We wanted what happened, why it happened, what can you do about it? It was much more of an empower, engage, and activate the Philadelphia citizen. How we do it is through a, a news story or a Ideas to Steal festival or for a town hall. But that was, that was an opportunity to say, we don't have to be the mayor, we don't have to be Chamber of Commerce to sort of say, we're going to empower, engage, and inform the Philadelphia citizen. And the citizen was created. Yeah. And then we decided... What's you your know, readership like on the citizen? Well, if you look at, we probably have the largest demographic in terms of the... Uh, you know, look, we're not a... You're not the inquirer. Well, well, we're not inquirer, but also if you... We're more like, if you look at the content, it's a little denser read. Yeah. So if you talk to the corporate leaders in our city, they read it cover to cover. We have the, yeah. probably the largest density of what you would say the most attractive demographic, the most educated and uh, and, and sort of the uh, hyper... No, we're not, uh, you know, we're not... Uh, a cliff note version. It's you know a little bit of a commitment. It's it's uh, spinach dipped in chocolate, so it's entertaining, but at the same time you're getting a lot of nutrients and yeah. nutrition. Not everybody likes spinach, but it doesn't sound very good. Spinach dipped in chocolate. Well, but uh, but I but understand the metaphor. No, well, uh, the way Larry makes it is delicious. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> if you look, there's a reason why the Citizen is growing so fast and yeah. why it's become such a prominent uh, news journalism outfit. The Germination Project. Yeah, you I was know, going to ask you about that. Well, that was created because you know when you think about the sports industry. 
You know, right now, I bet you somebody knows who the best running back is in Philadelphia public school as well as Catholic school and parochial school and what wide receiver, et cetera. How do we know who's the best physicist and the scientist in the lab? There's no system for that, right? Who the best writers are. So we created a system where we would identify the smartest 10th graders, right, and then give them a fellowship for life, not one year, two year, fellowship for life. And each year, a new cohort comes in. But look at that partnership generation created. Penn Medicine does a boot camp for them annually for the incoming class, yeah. right? We have a big gala where we announce to the world uh, at the Union League with all of the city leaders announcing with just like a draft day, like an NBNM. So now you have a promising young person who's being told you are a mutant with mutant skills, but your gift would be greatly enhanced if you use those mutant skills to enhance humanity and not yeah. just to hoard it for yourself. So they're in a purpose, mission-driven life. Boyd's suits them up. Uh, you know, so you have, uh, or Hershey Hospitality Reed takes them to New York Stock Exchange. Yeah. So look at the institutional partnerships that came together. Once a kernel of an idea that said, let's bring, let's create a platform where the best and the brightest come together and, and, and use the platform to help humanity. Penn Madison, Warden, Museum of Art, uh, you know, Hershey Hospitality, they all jumped in and said, how can we help? Yeah. And how can we participate? That was an organic example. The 10 program, you know, that's where I personally teach 10 kids, uh, you know, it's a one-year uh, immersion of learning inward, not external, yeah. but how do you learn about yourself. yourself. Um, Interchange, our partnership with the museum, yeah. um, where we bring artists and uh, and create a trade route, if you will, between Philadelphia and India, where arts and culture is the new spice. All of these things came from a conversation a like this. Yeah. Somebody says, yeah, but we need to do this. I said, okay, well, then we'll build it, yeah. right? And the arc came from those conversations too. Like we need, to, what, what's gonna happen to all the research that is happening right now during the pandemic? When it just die when the pandemic is over? We said, well, okay, we'll create an entity that will continue to fund it, to continue to sort of foster it. So David Fagenbaum, yeah. who now runs the great David impressive Fagenbaum. Individual. Impressive individual, for those who don't know. You know, he has Castleman disease and has is and he now cured it he's for himself. finding it, is patient zero, and, uh, and has already found by repurposing an existing drug to sort of contain his uh, disease. Yeah. Well, he's a brilliant scientist. He also uh, has created now the world's largest COVID registry, but prior to that, it was looking at existing drugs that are on, she- on shelves and finding new purpose for them, Yeah. right? Um, today, NIH, FDA, Google Health, all. So during COVID, he hyper-focused on just COVID. Yeah. How can we use existing drugs to deal with COVID patients? And man, you know, that is now embedded inside the arc. Yeah. And the idea, uh, along with Penn, obviously co- coexists, where we, our goal now is to find more funding for it. We have given, you know, some pennies to yeah. to lubricate the uh, initial funding, but, but our goal is to make sure that that work doesn't stop to, because David is literally saving lives, yeah. right? Literally saving lives and saving lives in big ways, finding cures for cancer, messenger RNA technology. That can't just end because COVID, that application has so many wider uses. So that has to continue to go. Well, R&D requires money. R&D requires support. R&D requires employees, a great thought leader. So our job, if I'm not a scientist, I don't know how to, you know, I was a chemistry major, but I don't remember what the periodic table looks like now. Yeah. But our job can just to be a cheerleader. We don't always have to be on the field. We can, you know, we can cheer them on. You know, yeah. We can support them. I want to take a step sure. back into your germination project a little bit. So you said you take students in 10th grade and, you know, foster them, give them all the opportunity to germinate them. So 
I want to ask, A, why 10th grade? Like, what was, you know, that cutoff? And B, to what extent are you taking students from the Philadelphia public school system as opposed to, say, the parochial and the private schools and the prep schools? So we're not, um, uh, we're school agnostic, yeah. uh, talent devout. So we're looking at the best and the brightest. Where they come from doesn't matter. Now, I will tell you that we hyper-focus on the public school system. We spend more time trying to recruit from the public school system. Yeah. Um, but we always end up more so from the, uh, the mainline private schools. Yeah. Although Central and Masterman public schools uh, have right. a lot. Uh, Harriton also has, yeah. has uh, some representation. Uh, it's the same thing, NBA. Why is it that always is coming from Duke and Michigan and others? You know, sometimes the concentration of talent is there. Now, Germination is a specific project that is looking for that type of talent. Yeah. Uh, the TENT program is not focused on talent, but much more focused on commitment of self-journey. Germination is a different example. It's more akin to like the Manhattan Project. You have to be a physicist to work on the bomb, right? And, yeah. Or the Lunar Project. You have to know something to sort of help uh, get to the moon. In this case, we're looking for a specific type of individuals who have uh, tremendous credentials, academic credentials, already a great sense of uh, purpose and a sense of self and humanity, uh, and you know, great letters of recommendations and a and a really brutal interview process where yeah. they get through a I mean, total colonoscopy. You know, where <laughs> they have to really. It's really intimidating. Imagine being a tenth grader and you are um, on the other side of the on the desk or on eight. Uh, business leaders in the in the region, led by the selection committees, led by Lisa Roberts. Yeah, wow. um, and and who's you know uh, is great, but we don't go easy on them. Uh, you yeah. know, our selection committee is, can be tough. Sounds intimidating to me. It is intimidating. It, by the way, it's intentionally intimidating. We want yeah. to see how they react and what they're doing, so that there's not a canned and we throw them off. It's so it's intentionally intimidating, but it's amazing how many great kids we get. Yeah, uh, uh, from uh, from that, and we now have 118 or so. Uh, kids, and I would say um, the kinds of kids that are doing, uh, from sports metaphor, just like what Kobe was doing in high school, you know, you take someone like Prithvi, for, uh, for example. Yeah. He wants to be Carl June. You know, he wants to specifically narrowly focus on immuno-oncology or something like that, cancer yeah. research. Well, he already has, I believe he's in 11th grade now, but when he was in 10th grade, he already has three uh, uh, programs that he's already finished from Harvard yeah. on specifically on immuno-oncology that medical students and others take. Yeah. And he's supplementing. How many high school students do you know who do that, who's already published in, in that area? So, so we're worried we're, about girls and prom. Well, well we're, we're, ta- we're targeting kids like that, right, yeah. who already have a very clean, clear sense of what they want to do. They don't all have to be eggheads, but it's an idea of, I have a purpose, I want it. Like, Kobe was not just trying to get into the NBA. He was trying to be the best. He was trying to beat Michael Jordan. He only had one person that he was trying to compete with, was Michael Jordan. And there are kids like that here who are not trying to compete with an individual as much as they want to be... Like we have Caleb Clothier, for example, wants to create the antidote to fake Facebook. I don't know if he still does it, wants to do it, but he's now, I believe, a fourth year at Yale. Uh, but in the beginning, that's what his focus was: create a social media outfit that is not destructive Facebook, to yeah. so, destructive society, but it's much more enabling. Uh, and he is there at Yale studying to create something like that. So it's, it's kids like that, and we're blessed to have them in Philadelphia. There's a surplus of them. Awesome. Um, so kind of wrapping up a little bit, um, I think we touched on it briefly, but if you never became a lawyer, this law school LSAT thing never happened, what do you think you'd be doing today? Exactly what I'm doing right now. I mean, you know, I think I have a, I'm a lawyer by training, yeah. entrepreneur by um, uh, interest, 
and a Philadelphian uh, uh, by uh, by heart. Yeah. Uh, so I think our foundation, our you know, bold mission is to make Philadelphia a global force in policy, commerce, and culture. Lots of eye rolls whenever you say that because it's such a huge thing. But look, we created. Uh, uh, for, uh, you know, whether it is the germination project or the interchange or the arc, they are ambitious. They're really ambitious projects. Yeah. Two and five capital, Togo, Indigo. These are all ambitious and uh, ambitious projects. Uh, I, I'm not worried about uh, getting to the end point. It's the journey that has been always been our focus, and um, I owe a lot to uh, this city. And and for me, it's it's been. It's been great fun, and I've been blessed to have amazing partners like Rudy Carson, Craig Snyder, and yeah. L.U. Cornell, and Alex Braden, Bill Hunter, and Doug Bathauer. So many people that I get a chance to uh, play with, uh, and and you know we're we're having a lot of fun. Larry Platt and, and all the other folks in the on the nonprofit side, and and the boards we serve, uh, whether it is Penn Medicine, uh, My Heart, uh, or the Philadelphia Museum of Art, My yeah. Heart. You know, these are great institutions to even have the, uh, you know, the opportunity to be in their orbit is amazing, uh, 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 amazing thing for me. I mean, I didn't speak a lick of English when I came here, man. So for me to be in, in rooms with them, to collaborate with them, um, it's it's uh, it is quite a story. And then last question. Sure. Last piece of <clears throat> advice, word of wisdom to you know young lawyers, new lawyers, law students, future law students, people coming into this career. You know, what's your one last piece of advice summation of it all? Be a voice, not an echo. I love it. Be a voice, not an echo. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. Wonderful renaissance man of a man, AJ. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>